This is JJ. And this is Kelly. And it's Half Pint Happy Hour here at Pub Crawl. These are short episodes where we check in, catch up, and answer questions to tide us all over until our chaotic schedules die down and we can return to full-length content. So, how's it going, Kelly? It's going. (laughs) It's going. It's been a strange week for me. Uh, but I couldn't really tell you why. I think I'm just having, I think anytime the seasons kind of transition, I get in this weird funk. Like I don't do well with transitional periods, just in general. <laughs> I like stability. Uh, I'm a cancer. I crave that. So, um, you know, right now in Minnesota, we're very slowly creeping towards spring. We're getting a lot more rain. Uh, you know, so the weather is kind of all over the place and it's pretty gloomy, but you know, sometimes you'll have a nice day and I don't know, it's just feels very transitional right now. And I think it's kind of throwing me for a little bit of a loop, but, uh, but otherwise good. What about you? Things are, you know, I have kind of the opposite thing you are in that, um, I'm feeling much better (laughs) and much more motivated to do stuff. Partially, I think because the days are longer now. Yeah. Um, and that does help me a lot. Mm. Just feel motivated about things. And it just, anytime the weather gets warm, I, cause it's been pretty warm here in the South. Um, it's been, well, it's been a weird winter. It's been like hot and cold, hot and cold, and just kind of not a very consistent winter, but, um, it has been consistently warm. It started to feel like spring. It smells like spring. I know it's spring because my allergies are trying to murder me in my sleep. <laughs> um, but I just, once the weather gets warm, I kind of start looking, like, it just feels like I'm looking forward to like spring break or summer vacation. And my memories of summer vacation are always sort of filled with just, I don't know, weird memories of me like taking up a new hobby or like being really productive or tackling a project. And so I'm, I'm like kind of gearing up for that, even though we're a couple months off still, but I've been feeling better. Um, writing is still writing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's still happening. But, uh, so we're taking time out of our hectic schedules today to answer some questions that we got on the hashtag, which, yeah. uh, you guys have been using. So thank you very much. Yeah, this is great. We've got, um, a couple questions to answer. So should we dive in? Yes. So do you want to do the, I'll, you know what? I'll go first, I guess. Okay. I took some screenshots because I knew I was going to completely forget asking them later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first one is from Ruth Owen and she asks, do you have multiple form rejection letters you use or just one? I think this is for Kelly. Yeah, I have just one. I have tweaked it a little bit um, over, you know, since I began agenting, it's changed slightly. Um, I have just one form rejection that I use for all of my rejections, and I do sometimes add in a personal note. That's rare, but sometimes I am moved to give some personal feedback, and then I'll just kind of tack that in, either at the beginning or the end, um, wherever it makes the most sense. Um, I do sometimes tell people outright that I don't represent their genre, and in that case, it's not even a form letter. I'll just say, you know, thank you for your consideration, but I don't represent screenplays. Best of luck. Um, And that I'll just type as a one-off but otherwise yep just one form rejection yeah i can't really imagine that 
you really need more than one. Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's always just going to come down to, regardless of the reason, it's it's just not for you. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think agents go far t- through far too many queries to, like, go through and maybe, like, choose which form rejection to send. I think... I think it's different when you have fulls that you've requested, but even then, I don't think you would be sending a reform rejection at that stage. Yeah, no. When I have requested material, I I do individual rejections if it's going to be a pass, and I usually do give feedback um, for all of those because you know I've taken the time to read it and I kind of have more insight, um, and I feel like you know writers deserve a little bit more. Um, of a response on requested materials. So I don't have a form for those. I just kind of write um, my reasons for passing. But yeah, for regular queries in my inbox, it's just a form, which I know sucks. And I wish that I could personally respond to everyone. I really do. Um, It's just not possible. (laughs) It's just not, you know, there just aren't enough hours in the day. Um, for that to happen, unfortunately. So I do respond. I do believe it's important to always respond. So, um, you know, I do make it a point to always send a response, um, even if it is just a form rejection. But I think it's hard, you know, for... I know there are some agents who only respond if they're interested, and I understand that. Um, But I think that's hard on the writer's end of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, uncertainty is kind of the worst part of this business because you're always waiting to hear back from somebody. Yeah, (laughs) waiting, waiting. Waiting and waiting. So, okay, so then Ruth has a kind of, not a follow-up, but I guess a related question, and it's what percentage of agents also write? It seems like quite a few. I have no idea. I know that there are lots of people who work in publishing who write. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you used to work in publishing and you were writing at the time, although you weren't publishing. Um, I have written um, throughout my publishing career, although I have never published. Um, Some people are um, published authors and work in the industry as well. I don't have a percentage off the top of my head. I don't think that it's bad necessarily for an industry professional to... Right as well. I think a lot of it depends on the personality because I think there comes a certain point in your writing career where you just want to write. And if writing is your goal, you can't, you can't serve two masters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think eventually there comes a time when you kind of have to choose which career path you're going to invest most of your time in. Um, and I don't know, there could be people, you know, who successfully juggle both throughout the length of their careers. Um, but I don't have a percentage for you. I don't really know. I think, I think the vast majority of us get into publishing because we like stories and we like, and that manifests itself often in writing because that's kind of the first place we learn to, you know, engage with story is, well, reading, obviously all of us who get into publishing are readers first and foremost, but the creative aspect of that um, is another way we engage with storytelling. So I think a lot of us write simply just, it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, you've got athletes who do certain things, but they cross train doing other things. And I think that's kind of the similar, similar muscle work there that's happening in publishing. Um, but I do agree with Kelly that at a certain point in your career, you either, as my dad used to say, <laughs> poop or get off the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd be a little bit more vulgar than that, but <laughs> it's, 
I think there are certain people who have both careers and who um, probably do it because they have six clones, and that would be David Levithan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I wrote all throughout my publishing career when I was an editor, but I will say that I did not seriously pursue publication until I left publishing. And I think you can, you can be in publishing on the publisher side, like as an agent or as an editor or as a marketer or a publicist or whatever, you can be on the, the other side of the desk and write. But once you try and consciously make a decision to publish, it's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. And, when your efforts are div- like when you are a writer and I didn't really I didn't really realize this until I was doing it how much of my time is actually spent publishing from an author side you know promoting your own work you know working on your quote brand which eh, um you know I do have a lot of thoughts about branding and all sorts of, and, and things like that, but, and, but that is all actually part of the small business aspect of being an author mm-hmm. and it takes up a lot of time. And if I were still an editor, I would not have time to do that. I would only have time to write. Um, so you have to sort of make a decision at some point. Okay. So am I publishing other people's books or am I going to publish my own? Right. Um, you can continue to write and publish other people's books, but you have to sort of make a choice one way or another. But there are a lot of people who are who work in publishing who don't write, who mm-hmm. don't wish to write, um, and they just love to read and they love to engage with story in that way, and that's um, a pretty good number. I don't actually know what the percentage is. A lot of a lot of people who work in publishing started off as writers, but that's I think you know it's sort of like how a lot of directors sometimes start off as actors. It's not necessarily you know, you just you you start in one aspect of the business and you kind of try your hand at different things. And you get a well-rounded view, and um, writing just happens to be one of them. So, yeah. And her last question is: How often do you offer representation for a book that never finds a publisher? Oh, okay. So I don't have any statistics to pull from my own client list because I haven't even gone on submission with anything yet. Although I have um, my first project, one of my clients and I plan to go on submission in June. So I'm gearing up for that. I'm very excited, but I can't give you statistics from my own personal um, work, but having worked uh, as a literary agent's assistant in the past and been around, um, I can tell you that this does happen. Um, I, I can't say with what, what frequency it happens, but it is not infrequent. It's not rare. Um, sometimes, you know, tons of things can happen. It's just not the market just isn't ready for that book. Um, you know, it's just, there's something about it that isn't, you know, a lot of planets have to align (laughs) in order for publishing to get representation, a lot of things in order to have success in publishing. And sometimes they just don't line up right away. Um, so there are definitely books. And I think if you talk to writers, um, some of them, you know, query their first book and get representation and sell their first book ever. Most of them don't. Most of them get representation for their second or maybe third book after querying a couple of others and then go on to sell that book. Um, Some of them, you know, that book that got them representation doesn't sell and you have to shelve it. And then you and your agent sit down and have a conversation about what to do next. And 
you work on the next thing and you try to go out with something else and maybe someday you'll be able to pull that, you know, previous manuscript back off the shelf and try to give it a second life. But, you know, sometimes it might just stay in the drawer forever and and never see the light of day. Um, It does happen. Again, I I don't have like a statistic I can give you. I could totally make something up, but, um, you know, I I can certainly think of examples that I've seen in my time in publishing where that very thing has happened, where the book just doesn't sell um, and you need to you know, move on and do something else. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, your agent isn't doing a good job or that you're not a good writer. You know, it's, it's just something about that project at that time is just not clicking the way that you'd hoped that it would. Yeah. No agent has a hundred percent sell rate. So if you're looking at for an agent and you're like well they don't I mean first of all it's hard to find that information anyway you don't have stats like that unless agents voluntarily you know announce them but no one really advertises stats like that and it's so hard to Mm -hmm. quantify this kind of a thing because a lot of this industry is so subjective Um, but like I said no one has a 100% success rate so I wouldn't necessarily make your decision about your agent uh, based on that. And But if, you know, no writer has a 100% success rate either. Either, the, um, either they've written a whole bunch of stuff before they got represented that never got represented. Um, and so, like, Beth Leveris is a wonderful story. She wrote a book a year for 10 years before she got an agent with her 10th book, the book that she was pretty much going to be like, I am done. You know, I've been trying for a decade to get published and it's just not happening for me. So I'm just going to, this is going to be my last hurrah. I'm going to set it aside. And that was the one that got her, her agent and landed her on the New York times bestseller list. But she wrote, you know, 10 other novels before that, that did not get represented. Um, mm-hmm. Marie Lou as well, and this is this is a story I don't think sh- she'll necessarily mind me telling. So, Marie actually had an agent when she was pretty young. I think she was in high school. I think she actually had an agent in high school for a fantasy novel, and um, they went out with it, and it never sold. So, and then in college, she wrote uh, another novel, um, and I don't think that went anywhere either and then sort of shortly afterwards or maybe when she was still in college she wrote a novel called the kingdom of back um and that is the book that landed her her current agent Kristen nelson because she and her first agent parted ways and i have i have a soft spot for the kingdom of back because that is a book that i tried to buy (laughs) um before Marie sold Legend and before um, anything else, I tried to buy. It was I was a baby editor and I saw this book on in submission, and I wanted it badly. I wa- I loved it. And if you guys have read Winter Song or know anything about it, it's about Mozart and his younger and his older sister, and it's got fantasy elements to it, and it's really beautiful. And I really really adored it. And people in my publishing house had no idea what to do with it. They were like, "Well, it's you know a little bit." 
the, because the age of the characters at the time and everything, and they're like, we're not sure if it's middle grade, but it doesn't read like middle grade, and they didn't really know what to do with that book, and then regretfully I had to turn that down, and then of course the next book that Marie went on submission with and sold was Legend, which is, you know, a big international bestseller, and all, you know, and, but then here's the end of this story. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, this is a great ending. It is a great ending. I've known Marie for about almost a decade now. God, I'm old. Um, and she just, not just, it's been, it, but it sold, she sold the kingdom back. She sold that book, um, which the first book that I tried to see, that I saw from her and I couldn't buy the kind of the cycles have turned and people were interested in it. Um, and she was already an established success with, you know, legend and the young elites. So they, decided to buy a kingdom back. So just because, you know, it doesn't sell now doesn't mean it won't sell later. So, but yeah, there is no 100% success rate in this business. Yeah. You just, you know, I mean, gosh, baseball players don't have a 100% batting average. So like, <laughs> no. <laughs> so those are it from Ruth, I think. Um, is anything else? Yeah. Yeah, this is like one for you, I think, that would be good um, to hear your perspective on. This one is from Megan Hendrick. And she asks, do you have any advice for melding two different stories or tones into one story? For example, The Mummy and Sailor Moon. And that's a great example for you because you love both of those things. Um. (laughs) I do love both of those things, and I would read that book tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) To be honest, I don't actually think that The Mummy and Sailor Moon are all that different in tone. I mean... I guess it depends on which version of The Mummy you're thinking of, but if you're thinking of the late 90s version with Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser, that one is very, it's fun adventure, you know, with slight supernatural elements to it, um, kind of a swashbuckling adventure story, and I would say Sailor Moon at its heart is, it's a story, it's it's funny, and it's about normal girls fighting evil to save the world, and, and mm-hmm. both of them are kind of lighthearted in tone. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have room for serious moments, but I would say that both of them are kind of action-driven with elements of either the supernatural <laughs> or magic. So I don't necessarily think that those are two movies that are different in tone. Um... So what about like just genre mashing then? Like if you're going to, you know, have a book that mashes genres, how do you balance that or go about that? I guess it depends on what genres you intend to mash. Um, But I do think going back to the question of tone, I do think that is the most important thing. You need to have consistency of tone regardless of what you're writing, uh, what you're mashing together. I did say when I was querying uh, Winter Song that it was the Jim Henson's Labyrinth meets Amadeus. Totally, those are very different movies from each other. Um, so, but I did particular. I think, anyway, that I was probably pretty accurately able to convey the tone of the book in, in the query as being a dark gothic fairy tale. I, you know, that was what I was going for. So even if the two touch points that you're using are not necessarily tonally similar the way Labyrinth and Almadeus are not, I, I decided on the, on the atmosphere and the tone that I was going to take. And then sort of took what I liked from both of those properties and put them into my book. Of course, my book is a mishmash of all sorts of different influences. Labyrinth, Phantom of the Opera, you know... 
the bell in the bed, like all sorts of different thing, influences that kind of come together and, and informed me and informed my interest in what my interests are and how they came out in that book. But I would pick a tone first and then pull the elements that speak most to you. So in the example of Sailor Moon versus Sailor Moon and the Mummy, you could say that it's like the Mummy in that it's this swashbuckling adventure with, you know, it's an, it's like a quest for magical, magical artifacts or whatever. And, you know, with like a bunch of, you know, girls who are banding together and discovering who they are, making friendships, you know, so you could say it's like, a, it's about a band of girls who, you know, are going on a swashbuckling adventure to defeat evil or even that kind of a thing. I don't think they're, so, you know, you, you find the story you want to tell and then kind of pull the things that call to you from each property. So I think that's that's how I would answer that one anyway. All right. So let's see. The next question we have is from Emily Picardo. Picardo, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. It's, when I try to personalize my query for an agent, I feel I'm coming off awkward. Do you have advice on how I can fix this? Yes, I do. This, <laughs> this is a great question because everybody is told, right? Like personalize your query the way that you would like personalize your cover letter or whatever. And here is what I get a lot of times um, for pe- from people that think that they're personalizing their query to me. And what they say is something along the lines of, Dear Kelly, I am writing to you because I noticed on your agency website that you like young adult fantasy. That's not personalizing the query. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So here is my advice in terms of personalization. If we have actually met or if we have... um, You know, if I requested your material in a Twitter pitch or if we've had some other kind of personal interaction, um, you know, like a one-on-one personal interaction, put that at the top of your query and say so. Say, I was at the Chicago Writers Conference and, you know, I met you during the lunch hour and we spoke about blah, 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 whatever. Um, Or you requested this during PitMad and whatever. Like, if you have something actually personal, an actual personal connection that you and I have made, put that at the top of your query before you get into your whole spiel. If you don't have something personal, anything that you say should go at the bottom um, with, you know, the rest of your, this is genre word count, whatever, and just start right in with the query proper. But the way to personalize, if you're going to personalize your query to that agent is to genuinely make it personal. If you read that agent's Twitter or follow their blog or, you know, find something human about them that you want to connect to and just state it really simply. You don't have to gush. You don't have to like, it's not, um, you know, a blind date or anything. Um, you know, it's still a professional business letter. Um, but if you're going to personalize it, then, then actually personalize it. Don't just put in a generic sentence that you can just swap out you know, the agent's name every single time, mention something specific about them. I had one query um, that mentioned, I had said something on Twitter um, about like the music that I was listening to that day. And at the end, when she sent it, she was like, oh, I hope this goes well with, you know, the soundtrack that you've got going on, blah, blah, blah. And it was just a little like throwaway line. And it, it didn't, 
you know, make me weigh her query any heavily, you know, than any other, but it did tell me like, this person knows who I am. She's querying me for a reason. She didn't just, you know, open a website and start copying the email addresses of every single agent ever listed. Um, so that's just it really just keep it simple. Keep it genuine. If you have a real actual connection, mention that if you met me somewhere or if we talked about something, if I've read your previous book and you know, I requested the full and I really liked it, but I ended up passing mention that say you requested, you know, my pirate space fantasy six months ago. And unfortunately it wasn't the right fit, but I have this new, you know, project for you that I think you'd really enjoy. Like mention that if that's a legitimate connection that we have, uh, if we don't have a legitimate connection, then, you know, just, just show me that you know who I am. A lot of times people will get names wrong or easy, simple things that make me, that it's clear that they don't actually know anything about me and, and what I represent and what I do. Um, so, you know, I think that's what people mean by personalization. I don't think that, you know, you have to bend over backwards. If, if you don't have a personal connection, then you don't, and that's okay. Just keep it professional. But if you have one, put it in there. Yeah, keeping it personal is basically make sure you spell their name correctly. Make sure you, gen- mm-hmm. make sure you gender them correctly. Uh, the, and then that's kind of it, because the agent is probably going to be operating on the assumption that you're querying them for a reason, which is you think that they'll be a good fit for you in some way or another. And you can personalize it in such a way that, like, because you like blank or because you represent blank or because you've talked about blank, right? I think yeah. you would be a good fit. Like, you can do that. But otherwise, it's not necessary. <laughs> you know, you can just be like, hi, Kelly, this is my, you know, and yeah. just start with a query. Just start with a query. Yep. And that's it. Yep. You know, you're they're they're not, you know, as far as I know, you're not looking for a best friend via your your slush pile. No, I have friends. I mean, I like to be friendly with my clients. I enjoy all my clients. I think they're great people. I like talking to them. Um, but it's a business relationship. I work for you, you know, if we move forward, I'm I'm going to work for you and so you know, keep that in mind. I know it's hard. I I know there's a lot of um you know, it, it it's hard. But yeah, just don't overthink it. If you have something personal to say, say it. Manuscript wish list is another thing that people use a lot. They'll look at, you know, what I'm looking for. And if their book fits some of that criteria, they'll mention that. They'll say, hey, you said that you wanted YA Orphan Black. And I think my book has some elements of that. So here you go. Um, Make sure that you're not just sticking a manuscript wish list in there just because. Like I've had some people who clearly don't know the things that I'm referencing in my manuscript wish list, like Stranger Things, or not Stranger Things, uh, Life is Strange, is um, a story about two girls and has romantic elements between two girls. And I've had many, many people uh, query me talking about their Max is the name of the female protagonist of the game. And they're like, oh, my hero is just like Max. And I'm like, mm, you're missing some key information here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my hero is just like Max. He and yep, like, yep. and you're like, hmm. <laughs> no, you don't actually know what you're talking about. So yeah, so just just you know, be professional. Know what you're talking about. Be upfront if we have a connection, and you know, if not, uh, it's fine. 
Right. So then the next question, it's a follow, not a follow up. It's another one from Emily. And she asks, if social media is a big part of my story, can I use the account's real names, Twitter, Instagram, or do I create my own? Talked about this a little bit before. Um, but I think if, as long as it's like incidental and you're not writing about like Mark Zuckerberg, like, or like, you know, things like that, where you're usurping the brand or making it seem like the brand is endorsing a particular thing. Um, I think if it's incidental, that's fine. I also think you can, it depends on the tone. Like if you're writing a really realistic contemporary, then it makes sense to use really realistic things. Although bear in mind that it will date your story. Um, but if you're doing, you know, more of a, like teen comedy or something that's really voicey or, you know, then it might make sense to like create Mm -hmm. something more unique for your characters, um, and that they use within that world. So I think it really depends. Um, I guess the question would be is how big of an aspect of your story is, is, is social media because right. If it's, as Kelly said, if it's incidental, it's something that the characters use. So, you know, because social media is a form of communication, you can say something like, oh, so-and-so sent me a Twitter DM, or I sent them a Facebook message, or, you know, that kind of a thing, or on Facebook they said blank, or blah, 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 blah. You can use those things, but if it's the, if it's the vehicle for which your story, upon which your story rides... I might consider coming up with a different social media platform that is like whatever you're trying to use. Right. Um, and that's partially because you don't want to, like, basically, if, you, if, it's, if it is the vehicle um, your story rides on, it, it could, depending on how the social media is portrayed, could be a, a legal issue. Um, so I would be careful with that, but... You know, like I said, if it's incidental usage, I don't think anybody really cares because it's like sending a text message or using the phone or, you know, sending an email. It's kind of we use social media in in those ways these days. So I don't think you can say you have to make up something for those incidental moments. But if it's a story that hinges around social media, like, oh, it's an Instagram love story, then maybe I would probably be like, uh... Maybe come up with an Instagram-like social media. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. Um, so do you want to read the last one? Yeah. So our last question for the night is from Camille. And uh, here it is. If you lose steam for your story early in, should you give up, rework, or keep going and see if it improves? Well, the question is, I guess, is have you finished anything before? Mm. Because the hardest thing to do at all is finish a book. And I know that. that <laughs> I know that, too, because I've never done it. <laughs> um, so if you find yourself consistently starting work and not finishing it, so you your, you know, your office or wherever you write or whatever is filled with you know, the beginnings of manuscripts and none of them are done, I would then maybe consider just pick one and keep going. But if it's, if it's, because there, there are two reasons people don't finish writing a book. Two reasons. One is that you just don't have the discipline to finish writing a book. It takes discipline. It takes work. 
It's not glamorous and it's quite frequently not fun. That's the thing about writing. It's often like going to the gym. It's just not fun. You know, you often feel much better once you have done it and once you have gone. But going to the gym or opening up your computer to write and actually the act of writing kind of is terrible. Um, But it feels great when you've figured out a problem or whatever. But if you've not actually ever finished a book before, then I don't think the problem is the story. I think the problem is in your willpower. The problem is you. The problem is you. (laughs) Um, But say you have finished books before and you know, you're working on a new story and for some reason you just can't move forward with it. You can't move forward with it. You can't move forward with it. You just don't care about the characters or you don't know what happens. When you don't know what happens, it's almost an easier fix than if you don't care. Because writing when you don't care is one of the hardest things to do. And so I think if if you have trouble finishing a book, losing steam... I would ha- I would consider the reasons why. If you're losing steam early because you don't know where it's going, then maybe you're starting you're starting to write it prematurely. You just it just needs more time to percolate and just to kind of mature and ripen before you sit down and, and get the story. Because sometimes you can start stories too early. You don't have all the pieces yet. You don't know this or you don't know that. A lot of our own a lot of the writing that we do or the storytelling or the creative parts that we do are not actually done in front of the computer. A lot of that a lot of the creative stuff just kind of comes to us in dribs and drams while we're doing laundry, while we're running errands or going grocery shopping or at the gym even. Sometimes these ideas sort of fall into place as we're doing other things. So maybe you're just starting you're just jumping the gun and you're writing too soon. If you're losing steam because you don't care that's a harder thing to diagnose and it's a harder thing to fix because so the book I wrote what I was trying to write before I wrote Winter Song was I've mentioned before it's a retelling of the magic flute I wrote 60,000 words on this book and I gave it up because it was not working it just it was dead on the page it didn't work Not that it didn't work in that the story was, you know, there is a story that was constructed, but there was just no life. There was no life to any of the characters or any of the interactions or the world. Nothing breathed. And because of that, I knew I was like, I need to, I need to set this one aside. And it could just be that in the future that I will tell this story again. And I just started it too soon. And I didn't have all the pieces that I needed in order to finish the story. But I, I knew going into it that I was like, nope, this is just not working. This is not breathing. It's not living. It's not, you know, taking its own life. So, or taking a life of its own, rather. So it's kind of, you have to sort of pinpoint why. And then if it's just, I don't feel like writing because it's hard, well, you know, you there, you know, obviously you don't want to burn out because burnout is a huge, can be a huge issue. And it is very real for a lot of writers, particularly YA writers, because we have to put out a book a year, which is, requires us to be constantly writing, constantly writing. And if we're not writing something, then we're, 
doing something for the other book. So if we're not writing something, then we're doing copy edits. And if we're not writing something, then we're promoting. If we, you know, so there's possibility of burnout. But if it's if you're not under that sort of pressure or deadline, I would say just you know just good old button chair. You know, sit yourself down. Again, I'm gonna pull up the bri- the gym going habit thing. You know, it takes what three weeks to form a habit. And if you just go to the gym at the same time every day, even if you don't have a hard workout, but you just go to the gym and you're there and maybe you you walk like 20 minutes or whatever, that's still 20 minutes more exercise than you did the previous day. So it's the same thing with writing. If you can carve out time, um, you know, if you, if you're obviously there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. If you have a child, if you have, you know, a day job, if you have all all sorts of other things that you have to be writing around, that's a different thing. But if you are able to carve out time for yourself, even if you don't feel like writing, you just sit down and write, even if it's 200 words, because that's still 200 words more than you wrote yesterday. And it might take forever. Mm -hmm. And that's it. The other thing is try not to take the long view, (laughs) because then that will drown you. Because if you sit down and you think, oh my god, I have this much more left of the story to write, then you'll just be overwhelmed by the enormity of your task, as opposed to, I'm just going to work on this scene today. And that's my goal. And if you can just kind of parse it down into small little things. Again, it's like working out. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm going to just run five minutes longer than I did yesterday. That's it. It, You know, when I was training for the marathon, which I did and never ran, but when I was in the process of training, it was that. When I was first learning to run, I would run for 30 seconds and I would walk for 60. You know, and I would run for 30 seconds and I would walk for 60. And I did did this three days a week. And then the next week, I stepped it up. And then I stepped it up. And then I stepped it up. And then by the end of five weeks or whatever it was, I was running a a 5K. So it's the same thing with that. So don't think about, you know, when when you're first starting, you're like, oh, my God, I have to write 85,000 words. That's a lot. But if you're just sitting like, okay, I'm going to write this scene today, or oh, today I'm just going to write 700 words, that's much more manageable. Yeah. That's all the questions that we have today. So have you had any time for reading or no? Nope. I just finished um, the last Great and Terrible Beauty book on audio. But yeah, no reading. (laughs) What about you? So I stayed up all night long again, and I read uh, Allegedly by Tiffany Jackson. And I don't know how I feel. I think it was an incredible book. I think it is so well-written and so compelling and engaging. And I mean, I did not intend to stay up all night and read it. It's just that once I started, I could not stop until the end. And... Um, I can't talk too much about it because, um, there would be major spoilers. Um, but essentially the story is there is a 15 year old girl named Mary who has been incarcerated her entire life because allegedly she, uh, murdered an infant when she was nine years old. And now she is 
pregnant. She lives in a group home and she kind of has some privileges. So she volunteers at a hospital and she has a boyfriend there. Um, and she is now pregnant and decides that she wants to raise her own baby, which of course no one is going to let her do because of the crime for which, um, she is, you know, currently serving time. So the whole plot is, you know, trying to uncover what actually really happened. And you go through these, you know, layers of unfolding of what really happened. And, and, um, it's a classic unreliable narrator and everything shifts and moves and you don't know, do I trust her? Do I not trust her? Um, just really fascinating and compelling book. Um, it, for lots of ways, you know, it, it, it describes, um, with a lot of piercing clarity, um, and an un filtered look at what it's like for some of these young women who are in these types of homes, um, you know, serving time for crimes that they've committed and, and their prospects and, and what that does to their futures and their lives and their day-to-day interactions and um, really sobering and upsetting book. I mean, basically everything's upsetting. The plot is that, you know, a baby was killed. So right there, that sucks. And then, um, you know, there's just a lot that deals with racism and classism and, um, you know, particularly racism within our justice system. And there's just a lot, there's just a lot in there. It's very upsetting to read on many levels. Um, I can't, I don't know if I enjoyed it. I I can't stop thinking about it though. (laughs) I can't stop thinking about it. And I was like afraid to go to sleep after I finished it because it was so creepy and sinister and just, oh, so I recommend it, (laughs) but I don't know that I can recommend it and say like, you're going to enjoy this reading experience. Like I think, (laughs) I think it evoked strong feelings in me, obviously. And I think that's worth reading. Um, I think, you know, reading things that provoke strong emotional reactions is important and it really was masterfully done. I mean, I think Tiffany Jackson is an excellent writer. Um, I think the book was incredibly well-written and the first person narration and the voice and the tone was so excellent. Um, so in terms of craft, it's great. It's just a lot to process. And I think I'm still processing, (laughs) (laughs) um so have you been watching consuming listening so (laughs) this is not new but it's something that i'm recently re-watching and that is the show merlin which oh yeah i think is british um yes and it's got Anthony Stewart, it's in, it's Arthurian legend, so it's it's as Merlin. Uther Pen- as, as Uther Pendragon, yep, and yeah. he's fabulous, <laughs> um, and it's it's not um, <laughs> it's not a good show. Like it's very episodic, you know, it's very like episode to episode, the characters, you know, face this issue and they overcome it and they have like character arcs within that episode. And then the next episode kind of resets everybody back, you know, where they were before. There's some character growth over the course of the series, but it's not one of these TV shows that has like series long arcs. You know, it's, it's an episodic show. The CGI is very dated and ridiculous, um, you know, but, but there's something about it <laughs> that I just 
love and I love all the performances um, for all the actors they're just all wonderful and I mean it is probably it, it is definitely queer baiting because Arthur Merlin never happens but the show very clearly like plays to it constantly and I just it, it, I just love the show I just and yet you don't like Doctor Who there's a different level of humor I think because with Doctor Who, the thing I can't get around is, like, the potty humor. I can't do it. <laughs> to be fair, that's only, like, one, two episodes. Oh. <laughs> two episodes. <laughs> All right. And it's the one with farting aliens. I saw that one. The Slavine. And that's about it. And like, there's so much, sim- to me, there's so much similarity between Arthur, between okay. Merlin and particularly the Russell T. Davies era of Doctor Who that I'm just like, and you don't like Doctor Who? If you tell me that that, because I I tried to watch Doctor Who like a year and a half ago, and I started um, with the reboot. and With Nine or with with Doctor? I don't know. Um, Was he bald with a leather leather jacket? Okay, that was Nine, yeah. So I started with him, and it just... I just, the humor in it, I just couldn't. And like, I know it was early because it was the reboot and they were probably finding like their footing and like figuring out what the show is going to be. And if you tell me that it gets beyond that, like if it's just first, like quote unquote, first season growing pains, then I will return and give it another shot because a lot of people that I know love this show, but I was just sitting there. I watched like six or seven episodes and I was just like, I can't do this. (laughs) You watched six or seven episodes? I I watched a lot. Of that, for, of just that season, I never got beyond that doctor. So, but so then, did you watch the "Are You My Mummy" one, the one with the set in World War Two with the mask and the? No, there was one because that's definitely early in the season. There was one, too, with, and that's an like, excellent. There episode. was one with like skin like stretched out on a frame. I just rem- I don't oh, I don't yes. remember the plot, but that. I remember like that image. But that was with David Tennant. And not with nine. No, there was one with nine. I've never seen the David a David Tennant episode. Oh no, the the one stretched over the skin is the end of the world. Where they go to the end of the world, yes, and yeah. they watch the destruction of Earth, yes. and it's moisturize me, moisturize yes, me. That one, uh, <laughs> Lady Cassandra. Um, as you guys, if you guys can't tell, I'm a huge Whovian, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the new Doctor Who has just come back, but I have not. I just won't be able to catch up on it until my book is done. I will say Um, that I I don't remember who said it, so I can't attribute this, but someone on Twitter, this got retweeted into my feed, that they were talking like, they're looking for the new Doctor Who, and they want someone who's like sexy and kind of young and like David Tennant-like, and this person had like quoted that and then been like, so Sue Perkins, Perkins. (laughs) and like, (laughs) I would be on board. Like, I would watch it. Like, I don't care. (laughs) I would watch it. So, oh, I I mean, I actually really love Peter Capaldi. He's the newest doctor. I just hate Stephen Moffat, who's the showrunner. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's this constant constant um love-hate relationship that I have with the show. I I did not like 11. Sorry, Matt Smith, but I I he, it's not that I didn't like his doctor cuz I actually liked his doctor quite a bit. I hated the stories he was in. Every single story was the worst, and it didn't get better. It got worse and worse. Um, so I just, every, I just, I hated it so much. And then Capaldi shows up, and I was like, I, I, 
I'm back. I like the show again. Um, but there is something about to be said about the Russell T. Davies era of Doctor Who, which was the first reboot. So it was Christopher Eccles, who Eccleston, who was um, nine, and then David Tennant did four years of the show. And Russell T. Davies and and David Tennant left the show at the same time. And the producing team also left at the same time. Not, like, for any bad blood or anything like that. They were just like, it's time to move on. Um, So Russell T. Davies left. He was the showrunner. Julie Gardner, who was the main producer, also left. Um, David Tennant left. So when Stephen Moffat came in as as a show, it really did feel like an entirely different show. And I didn't like it. So, and it's not and it's not like I wouldn't be willing to go with change because I've actually seen old episodes of Doctor Who, like old 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 from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um I have my favorites there too, but like I, you know, I'm okay with change in that way, but I just don't like Stephen Moffat, who I think is very glib with no actual substance, whereas Russell T Davies is very camp. Like I'm not going to deny that everything he writes is camp like there's no tomorrow but i have also never cried as hard in anything literally anything i've never sobbed as hard as i have in anything except for what russell t davies has written so oh also interesting fact julie gardner who was the producer during russell t davies run of doctor who is also the executive producer of the tv adaptation of the golden compass that's coming out soon from the bbc so i'm curious about it um do I have any recommendations? No, no media that I've been watching. A lot of a lot of facial care stuff though. <laughs> yeah, talk about the snail cream. I I discovered snail cream, you guys, and it's like this miracle thing that I was like, where have you been my entire life? Um what was I got it in a sale oh I got um I think it was sunscreen that I needed. Uh, It's like an SPF 50, and it was mattifying because I tend to have pretty oily skin. And so I bought this one from Korea that had pretty good, well-rated reviews, and they sent samples of snail cream. And I just kind of let it lie around for a while because I was like, what what is this? And then I one night I was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. And I like put it on literally, and I woke up, and I've never seen my skin more incandescent in my life. It looks really good. I... I was just like, oh my god, this is a... Where have you been? So, of course, then I dropped a whole bunch of money on the full-size version of it. So, um, I'll put a link in the in the show notes. It's, it's called Tony Moly 24 Karat Gold Snail Cream. And it is, in fact... The cream is, in fact, made from snail mucin, which is snail slime. And it is used because it has regenerative properties in that the snail uses its own slime to basically heal itself whenever it gets injured. Um, As far as I know, because I just read about it or listened to it in a different podcast, um, that they, they send snails to like a snail spa. Which is like they like it's like a steam sauna type thing. They just like and they just secrete more slime and mucus, and then when they're done, they go back like into the wild, so they don't necessarily harm the snail. Which I think is funny. So like a snail goes to snail spa, and then they collect the slime for like human human spas, which I think is very funny. Um, so yeah, that's 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 my recommendation for this week. But seriously, it's like I literally I woke up and I was like, oh my god. 
It's so beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Not a very short happy hour episode. <laughs> no, we talk too much. All right. Well, I guess that is it for this time, though. So we'll see you soon, guys. All right. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>